Welcome to what will be a monthly series of joint United States Study Center, US, Perth US Asia Center conversations between myself, Gordon Flake, the CEO of the Perth US Asia Center at the University of Western Australia and Simon Jackman, CEO of the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney, during which we will review the latest in US politics with a focus on the upcoming US election and US Indo-Pacific relations. Though in our new and virtual world, the concept of host has changed meaning as this is a joint endeavor, I will be acting as host today. Simon and the USSC will act as host next month and so on. For those of you who are not aware, our two organizations are sister centers with shared DNA and a shared relationship with the American Australian Association. We're delighted to collaborate to bring our shared communities what we hope will be a useful discussion of US politics. As most of you will be aware, prior, prior to assuming my current responsibilities in Perth over six years ago, I spent 25 years in the foreign policy think tank community in Washington, DC. Uh, for his part, prior to joining the United States Studies Center four years ago, Simon spent the bulk of his 30 year professional career in the United States, including 20 years at Stanford University as one of the country's preeminent political scientists and election experts, something that serves us extremely well today. Simon, I trust you'll agree that there's never been a more interesting or important time to be studying the United States. And I might add, never a better time to be in Australia. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you, Gordon, and indeed uh, would agree with that. And, um, and thanks for the introduction. And thank you for this opportunity. Um, I think this is a tremendous initiative between the two centers. Um, and really look forward to seeing how these discussions evolve. Um, and particularly with the guests, I expect we'll be bringing on to uh, these, these conversations over the, what is it, about 145 days until the election. And, and, and who knows what comes after, if there's, a, if there's a change in the United States or not. But, um, but again, my thanks to you and your team, Gordon, and for standing up today. We in Sydney look forward to reciprocating uh, in a month's time, but, but, but great to be with you and, um, and great to uh, that the two centers are jointly servicing our missions, plural, um, today. Thank you, appreciate that. Now, I'm delighted to report we have over 270 people signed up for this event today from seven different countries. And from our perspective here, importantly, every major city in Australia. So we're delighted with the level of interest. And I think it, it speaks to the mission of both our centers uh, to be uh, discussing these issues today. To add a little bit of a, a structure to what could be a, a completely undisciplined and free-flowing kind of a bull session between Simon and I, I thought we might focus our remarks around three basic questions. And the first one, and I'll start throwing them to you in the first case, Simon, is, is there anything uh, in, in recent developments in the United States that you have found surprising? <laughs> uh, so much. And, and um when you said that would be the first question, Gordon, it, it, one thing, it imposes a discipline um, to nominate just one thing. Um, but the one thing I will nominate, and there are so many I could, but the one thing I will pull out is um, a series of public opinion polling showing widespread support for Black Lives Matter as a movement uh, and the underlying issues of, you know, that it's time for America to address long-standing racial inequalities, particularly as they pertain to the administration of criminal justice. Um, and, um, and that the way that 
you know, the data I'm looking at right now, New York Times, the Upshot site, uh, reporting some data um, on this, you know, big uptick uh, where, you know, positives outpace negatives um, across the U.S. population on, on the movement um, by, by 25 points now. Um, and, and this movement across every demographic category um, uh, and 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 that that has held up. You'll see um, support for the protest per se, majority support um, across racial groups. Uh, it does break bipartisanship, partisanship though. Um, but to see that so many Americans, um, again, with the exception of perhaps partisanship as being a, a cleavage there, but so many Americans recognizing uh, that this issue is important. And, and it's high time that America make some more progress on this long-standing uh, source of inequality and injustice in American society. Well, having worked so long in Asia, I'll, I'll put my remarks in the context of a Japanese concept. You know, the Japanese are so well known for their precision uh, and their planning. And so it's said that in Japan, there's no such thing as a pleasant surprise. Right? <laughs> no surprises are good, but in this case, there are two things that I've found that are, that are pleasant surprises. One, to see former Republican presidential candidate and Republican senator from the state of Utah marching with the Black Lives Matter protests. That was a, a, a striking and pleasantly surprising development. And, and the second one is related to that. And both of these actually tie into that, the very polling that you're talking about in terms of where the majority of American sentiment is. The fact that NASCAR, uh, you know, the Stock Car Racing Association in the United States, which is most widely associated with the South, with rural, uh, you know, with, with people that you might think would be make America great again, kind of Trump type of supporters. They came out today and, and or this week rather and banned the use of the Confederate flag anywhere in NASCAR, in the stands, on the cars and their logos, et cetera. And so it really does speak to a, a more fundamental shift taking in, in place in America and, and tracks with what you're talking about, Simon. Appreciate it. Yeah, no, nice pickup, Gordon. I, I thought those were incredibly significant uh, developments, and um, the NASCAR one in particular. Um, you know, the Confederate flag is, you know, synonymous with yeah. NASCAR for those of us that have spent time in the United States and um, sort of the, the the symbols that surround NASCAR. It is unmistakably. Uh, and proudly uh, southern and a little rednecky. That's kind of part of the the, the cult and culture, and and for that organisation uh, to take that step, um, um, a real just one of a few signals that America this time perhaps seems determined to sort of take a few steps forward. Um, um, Gordon, the other thing on this front, I think it's worth mentioning too, there's so much happening in America at the moment, but, but this recommendation that came up through the Defense Department that bases named for Confederate generals be, uh, be renamed. Uh, uh, so those of us that know the US military, uh, Fort Bragg in North Carolina, Fort Benning in Georgia, Fort Hood in Texas, uh, they are all the names of uh, generals of the Confederate Army. Um, and um, it came all the way up uh, through the military 
Uh, in the week that um, an African-American man was named uh, the chief of the American Air Force, the first time an African-American has served as one of the service chiefs. So these steps happening at the same time, you've got NASCAR doing its thing, and you go, goodness me, could this be, could this be a moment, uh, capital A, capital M moment? Um, um, and look, irrespective of where you stand on the politics of the day, I think it would be an overwhelmingly positive step if, if the death of George Floyd uh, were to be the catalyst um, for, for some progress on this long-standing issue in American society. You know, one of the things that has characterized the last four years has been the sheer volume of significant issues and developments. It, it's, you know, to, to, to put it in a phrase, it's like drinking out of a fire hose. Just, it just comes out so much. And, in some ways, that was the secret to President Trump's campaign strategy. You just, just keep jamming the system so much. And it's difficult. You know, I think we envisioned this series to be a monthly discussion and a review of the previous month. But we could easily occupy hours just talking about a review of the last hour. Every six hours, yes. <laughs> enough out there. To but I thought we might tap, take even a step back further still sure. and, and, and focus on a two-part question. One is, what recent development or event in the United States have you found most concerning and then the flip side of that, what have you found that is the most encouraging? Well, I got to say, I had a hard, uh, an easier time coming up with possibles for the most concerning than I did for the most encouraging. But um, but we'll see where we landed on these, Gordon. On 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 most concerning, look, the thing I keep coming back to is just the the Trump strategy, um, the way. The divisiveness um, seems to be, and the return to the base, uh, revving up the base, revving up the base, revving up the base. Um, um, I hope he makes a different speech to the speech I think he'll make in, Tam uh, in Tulsa on, on June 19, and we can get to the significance of Tulsa and the significance of June 19 if you want. But... Um, but just the way that there does not, you know, he's such an unconventional president, might be the most polite way of putting it, slightly less polite, transgressive. But, but in moments of great national crisis, um, so many other presidents take on that role of, you know, conciliator in chief, bringing the country together. Even W. Bush, George W. said he wanted to be a uniter, not a divider, and, and history will judge the extent to which he succeeded. But you don't get the sense Trump even aspires to that. And, and I wonder what that portends for the rest of the, between now and the election, what sort of an election campaign um, we're gonna see as a consequence. And indeed, what is the thinking where that divisiveness is the cornerstone of your public messaging 140 odd days out from your re-election. What, what does that signal about the sort of campaign you're running and the way you think you're gonna get back into office? Um, and and I, I, I really struggle with that, both as a political scientist thinking about electoral strategy and, and you need more votes, not fewer, and, and Trump seems to be sort of going, if anything, in another, doubling down on, on, on solidifying a base that I think is already with him. And so it's a, it's a little odd to me. 
I guess the other one, Gordon, I have to point to is just while we've been so attentive to the developments on the back of George Floyd, the tragic death of George Floyd and everything that's followed from it, you know, 800 Americans a day to 1,000 Americans a day are dying from COVID-19 related illnesses and and the pace of new infections. And perhaps that's a function of expanded testing, about 18,000 new cases roughly a day and states that thought to have their outbreaks under control, it seems to be going in the wrong direction in, in quite a few states. But the case count went over 2 million confirmed cases uh, yesterday, I believe, in the United States. That's a, another huge source of concern for me. So there, there are two things that are just enormously concerning, Gordon. Um, well, now that, now that you, you've depressed us greatly, we're going to turn you to kind of look at something that's okay. a little bit more encouraging. So what, what, do you, what green shoots do you see out there that you're paying oh, attention to? Look, I, 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 I was talking about this with some American friends um, last week, and... And that's just American civil society. Um, people put the vandalism and the looting to one side that you've seen after dark and is actually starting to die down now. But these protests are continuing. Um, people have been on the streets now for weeks. Um, this determination and this, what you see in American society time and time again where it's ordinary people, the grassroots exercising their First Amendment rights, um, getting up and determined through their voices to make a difference. I, I, I find that enormously encouraging. And, and it's a source of inspiration for Australians, Gordon. You know, United States Study Centre polling, when we ask Australians the things they admire about the United States and the things that they don't admire about the United States, but the things they admire about the United States, behind American science and technology and, and sort of its cultural products, Hollywood and film, in, in a close third place comes personal freedoms and liberties and, and that, that capacity that America has shown, certainly in our lifetimes from the 60s through to the current American social movements that inspire the world, be it the women's movement, be it the environmental movement, be it the anti-war movements of the 60s, be it the anti-nuclear movement, and now Black Lives Matter, that led Australians in their thousands to get up off the couch here in Australia and, and be attentive to Australia's struggles with racial injustice. Um, that capacity of American civil society to not just rejuvenate American society, but to inspire the world um, is something I, I've, I've come back to. And people talk about the sources of American greatness. That right there, I think, is one of the sources of American greatness. Well, in a small way, I would like to consider research organizations like the United States Studies Center, the Perth U.S. Studies Center, an important part of civil society, although uh, with a different role. Um, if I could look to my own uh, both areas of concern and areas uh, of hope, they're really two sides of the same coin. I think many of our viewers today will have followed closely the events of the 2nd of June, when there was a demonstration on H Street in front of the White House, which those of you who have been to Washington, DC, immediately to the north of the White House, there's a park called Lafayette Square. Right across the park, there's an old Episcopalian church called St. John's Parish, uh, which is, a, again, a common place for US presidents to visit, to attend church, et cetera. It, it had, in riots in the previous weekend, been burned, was boarded up. 
um, there were ongoing demonstrations in the streets in front of that church. Uh, but somehow during the course of, of the 2nd of June, President Trump made a decision to give a speech in front of that church. And it's now kind of a famous speech with him wielding a Bible. Uh, and that itself caused a tremendous amount of backlash in, in American society. But the process by which that street was cleared, with police were involved, the military was involved, et cetera, really became a real flashpoint. Uh, for those of you who are interested, the Washington Post did, I think, Pulitzer Prize-worthy coverage of that event, which wouldn't have been possible even a few years ago. They just pieced together police radio and hundreds of, of cell phone videos to, to map out a minute-by-minute minute, uh, uh, case of how that day progressed. And the reason I, I list that is because at, a moment, at, the, at the time, that moment seemed to be a moment where American de democracy could have been on the brink. You had not only the president of the United States, you know, moving peaceful protesters using tear gas, but you had him accompanied by the secretary of defense and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, in uniform. Uh, and that, that stark militarization of the issue, or another way to put it, the politicization of the military really concerned an awful lot of people, uh, myself included. The flip side of that is that in the intervening weeks, uh, there has been a remarkable amount of pushback. Uh, so you saw 89 different former, current and former defense officials come out and state that this is not the role of the military. The, the use of the military internally is, is unconstitutional. You saw a tremendous pushback to an op-ed by Senator Tom Cotton in the New York Times calling for the U.S. troops to be involved in putting down protests in the United States, ironically done in the exact same day of the Tiananmen massacres, massacres 31 years before in, in China. Uh, but since then, you've now seen uh, the Secretary of Defense, Esper, come out and, and, and back away from the statements he made at that time. Just today, we had the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Milley, come back and say it was a mistake. Uh, you've had Colin Powell, Admiral Mullen, uh, and most significantly perhaps, uh, uh, the first Secretary of Defense under President <clears throat> Trump, and highly respected Jim Mattis, all come out and push back. So that snapback, that step back from the brink is something that I think is both um, needed and, and, and deeply encouraging because uh, there, there was a real worry just a week and a half ago in terms of that process. So. All right, Simon, let's turn to, to bring it a little bit back home, a little bit more parochial. What, what have you seen in, in recent weeks uh, that is most important to Australia uh, and which Australians should be paying perhaps the closest attention to? What means the most to us? What will impact? Um, yeah, look, I, I keep coming back to this civil society um, upwelling that I was alluding to before. It's something, again, our polling, Gordon, um, that Australians take great, sort of pay a lot of attention to. And um, when Australians feel um, better about the direction America is going in, I think that makes managing the alliance a little more straightforward. I think it's, it's hard yards for an Australian government, an Australian prime minister, an Australian foreign minister, or slightly harder yards. Um, when the government and the policy direction and the tone of the United States, if you will, is, is sort of at odds where um, Australian public opinion is. And, and that's, 
been it's been I think it's been rather difficult uh, under, under Trump for that for that reason, and so I I take great comfort from the fact that you know Australians are paying incredible amount of attention to these developments, Gordon. Everything you just alluded to, mm. the, the 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 way the armed for, the leaders of the armed forces um, have pushed back, uh, the fact that um, someone like Mitt Romney was on the streets. Um, I think this idea, some reassurance that America is not coming apart at the seams, that there are people, despite how difficult it is over there at the moment, that there are a lot of voices around who, who understand the limits of executive power, respect those, uh, those limits, and, and that millions of Americans want America to be a better place. Now, I, I think that what that does to Australian public opinion about America actually does have consequences for Australia's national interest for the conduct of of America of Australian foreign policy and and um, and that's something again we're tracking very very closely with our research uh, at at the U.S. Study Centre in Sydney. One of the other areas where your centre is so focused so well is on America's alliance relationships uh, with the United States in particular. But one of the observations I would make that I think is a development most relevant to Australia today is the fact that the U.S.-Australia alliance does not exist in a vacuum. Right? Um, while tremendous credit is, is due to our current government and, and previously to the government of, of Malcolm Turnbull in managing what could have been a very difficult alliance uh, to the point where the Australia-U.S. alliance today is widely seen as kind of the gold star alliance, right? Australia yeah. has, has really not been the attention of, of the focus that you've seen elsewhere, whereas the Trump administration's relationship with NATO is fraught, uh, is, is fraught with, with a, a lot of, of division, uh, with even close neighbors like Canada, uh, the country South Korea, another treaty ally here in our region, has had a year and a half now of extremely divisive and public um, um, dispute over host nation support, uh, you know, cost sharing, burden sharing, et cetera. And those same issues are playing out with Japan this year. Um, and so in that context, it might seem that, well, Australia, we're fine, we're good. But the development in the last week, which I think shocked a lot of people, even after the last three years, was the president's unilateral and apparently uncoordinated statement that he was going to withdraw as much as a quarter, if not a third of U.S. troops out of Germany. Uh, and it was seen to be something that was done out of particular annoyance you know, to statements and actions made by the German uh, Chancellor, uh, Angela Merkel. Uh, I'm happy to see that in the intervening um, a couple of days, there has been some pushback from Capitol Hill, uh, as well as the commentary. And we're not exactly sure. One of, the, one of the challenges of this area is that are tweets policy or are they not? Do they represent a policy or not? Because some of them are real and are carried out and some of them just right. kind of hang out there and then the actual actions don't go forward. Right. So th th therein lies um, uh, a real concern if you're Australia because the truth is a weakness in the U.S. alliance network anywhere uh, impacts on the U.S. alliance network everywhere and that includes Australia despite, I think, the admirable performance of our governments in recent days. Well, Simon, we could go on for a long time, but we actually, again, th those people who registered in advance, a number of them have put up questions for us, and I've been watching as, as questions come in during the course of our conversation. Mm -hmm. We've just got a little bit of time left, but I wanted to make sure that we got to some of those. Um, there was a number of questions that grouped together 
around U.S. politics. I want to start to you with the beginning up. Peter Dawson, who's executive director of Lycopodium, uh, a resources firm here in, in Western Australia, said that Trump is sowing the seeds of a rigged election in the event that he loses in November. Uh, and he asked the question of whether or not the right-wing media, that ecosystem, would be supportive of that. A number of other people expressed concern about if Trump loses or if it's a close election, would he leave? And that does seem to be a, a, an issue of greater concern. How would you address that? Um, uh, let's see Democrats win the election first before we worry about whether Trump will vacate the premises. Um, I am a little more immediately concerned about the conduct of the election, that um, Trump is already making so many noises about the legitimacy of vote by mail. Um, I worry about vigilantism, um, groups feeling um, that they have to police the election process off their own bat. Um, um, and that being covered for, frankly, intimidation of minority voters that might want to vote Democratic and, and retaliation um, that might, and violence that might result from that. Um, one of the things America really needs to have, uh, it's consistent with the theme that we're really invested in at the US Study Center, what the course of American prestige, this hard power, but this American prestige, mm -hmm. a core component of that, America's example to the world, um, um, is, is, the con is the fact that it's a democracy and, and having a, f a free and fair and peaceful election, I think is so important to that. And that's probably my biggest concern, Gordon, um, something that we're going to um, do a bit of work on between now and the election here at the Sydney Centre. But, but, but I, I, that is, I think, above all, um, before we get to whether he leaves the premises, just what happens on election day, what happens with both the, the legal things that he can do to, to try and not, you know, and all the secretaries of state in Republican states might do to um, try and interfere with the, with the conduct. And we saw that primary in Georgia, just where you put polling places, uh, how many polling places are there to serve minority communities or communities where you think the Democratic vote is going to be strong. All that fun and games that is kind of legal, not perhaps not fair, but legal, right through to third parties getting up off the couch and, and going out in army camouflage or whatever it might be and, and, and thinking it's their role to, to uh, police look, the election. So that's something I'm, I'm look, enormously, as, as a scholar of elections and, and someone in my scholarship that is that, that I've worked um, on free and fair elections, trying to make that a reality. Um, yeah. let's, let's again, again, realize time is short, but let's, let's, let's focus a little bit more on something you referenced there, which is the elections in Georgia. You know, back in, in 2013, the Supreme Court successfully overturned a core component of the, the Civil Rights Era Voting Rights Act in Section 4, which basically required areas that had a history of, of, of the suppression of minorities to submit any changes in their process to the Justice Department for mm -hmm. approval. And yet somehow between then 2013, if you look at between the 2012 election and the, the 2016 election, I can't remember the exact number, but it was seven to 800 polling places were closed 
Uh, and the vast majority of those were in minority neighbors, neighborhoods in the historic Confederacy in the American South. I myself, you know, in both the 2012 election uh, and um, the 2008 election previously, lived outside Washington, D.C., uh, in what was Prince George's County, majority African-American County. Sure. Uh, both years, we waited over four hours in line to polls. Wow. Australian wow. listeners couldn't understand. Uh, but can you just talk a little bit more about the mechanism of democracy and some of the developments? You've done tremendous work on gerrymandering, but there's also some physical changes that are taking place in terms of the ability to... And tell us a little bit more about what's just happened in Georgia. So, so it's, it's, it's largely a precinct consolidation story. Um, so, and, and by that we mean, um, so let me back it up. Um, in the United States, um, un in Australia, election administration is really in the hands of bureaucrats for the most part. Um, the electoral commissions we have in Australian jurisdictions are really run by, the, by public servants with a, a retired judge or a nonpartisan figure typically at the helm of these organizations. In many American states, that is not the case. And indeed, in the last gubernatorial election in Georgia, the candidate for governor was the Secretary of State, and in the Secretary of State is also the Chief Elections Officer for the state. So the Secretary of State managed and had legal authority for the free and fair conduct of an election in which he himself was a candidate. Now, massive conflict of interest there. He went on to win the election. And, and a tactic that Republicans tend to be using lately is not just gerrymandering, drawing district lines that favor themselves, but to put a thumb on the scale with all the other ways that election administration happens on the ground. How easy is it to register to vote? Do you purge the rolls? If someone hasn't voted in the last election, do you say, oh, well, they're no longer, they don't live in the state anymore or they've passed away or, or you just purge rolls and put the onus back on the voter um, uh, to get back on the, on the, on the rolls. Um, uh, where, how, many, how you staff polling places and the resources you give to counties and local governments to conduct their elections, you can do that in an uneven way as well. And indeed, poorer counties lack the, the financial resources to staff polling places, to have new machines and, and all the technology that makes voting easy and cheap and low cost. You know, election day is a Tuesday in the United States. Um, 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 voting by mail is, is often seen as a, as a way to overcome the, the, the impediment of voting on a Tuesday. But um, it, it, there are plenty of other ways you can make voting a costly exercise uh, for people. And Republicans, more so, but Republicans, it would seem, it is, a, it is now a systematic part of a strategy to get or to retain power state by state to put barriers in, in the way of people uh, looking to vote um, because the, the, on the margin, each additional vote, as turnout goes up, um, it tends to be a Democratic vote more so than a Republican vote. So lower voter turnout, particularly in minority neighborhoods, is, is seen as, as a part of the strategy to sort of keep the Republican vote up and everything from the top of the ticket, Trump, right through to state legislature uh, and, and local government. Thank you. That, that's extremely helpful. And it, it's worth those listening today to kind of pay close attention to what's happening in Georgia, just because it, it is a preview of what's likely to happen during the fall and something I think that is, warrants a lot of concern. 
one way to kind of frame much of this discussion is the flip side of your optimism about American civil society. <laughs> uh, and that is that that is necessary. And one of the reasons that it is necessary is because the institutions haven't been functioning as well as they had. So, um, you know, maybe one of the things we might discuss in a future discussion is just kind of the relative strength of American institutions. So on the one hand, we, we already talked today about how well-respected the military remains uh, yes. and they're stepping back. And so they, they continue to be a highly respected institution in American society. By and large, the courts have largely held, held their own in this period of time. But if you were to look at the media as an institution uh, and, and deliberate attempts to reduce their influence, government, of course, the Congress, of course, but then you, when you go beyond that to a lot of the other you know, institutions of democracy, some of them are actually the mechanisms themselves. So that'd be an interesting way for us to kind of feel this. Now we're, we're right almost at, uh, at time here. And we've got three or four questions which are sure. really too big for us to handle in three or four questions, but they were all largely focused around China. And that's not surprising right. either. Um, well, we had a great question from Duncan Alford, who's Associate Dean at the University of South Carolina. Uh, so we're delighted to have someone calling in from South Carolina listening wow. today. Wanting to know about Australian attitudes to, towards China. Sure. I thought what, 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 what might really be helpful here is to direct them to both our two center websites. Sure. Uh, you have a wonderful team at the United States Studies Center that's done an awful lot of research uh, on uh, Australia-US alliance, but also on uh, the fundamental question about how Australia is responding to challenges from China. Our own director of research has done tremendous work, particularly in recent days, as Australia has been at the front face of dealing with the trade war with China. Um, and so I think you're going to find a lot of information available in what we've got there. I would also put out as a bit of an advertisement, uh, there's a wonderful weekly newsletter that comes out of the United States Studies Center that gives a lot more information, much of which Simon and I have been discussing. Uh, for our part, we have a bi-weekly weekly newsletter. So we urge you who are listening here, uh, those of you in Sydney who not, may not be aware of our product, and those of you here in Perth or around the world who may not be aware of the product of the, uh, the United States Studies Center, to kind of look into it a little more deeply. Uh, we're sorry we couldn't get to more questions. I'm actually delighted that neither of us could get to the question trying to predict who the vice presidential nod of Joe Biden will be. <laughs> that would be a pure guess. But on behalf of me uh, and the Perth US Asia Center, thank you all for joining. Uh, Simon, thank you for, for your, your insights and sharing your expertise. Uh, and we look forward to having you host us next month. So Simon, I'll yeah. over to you. Uh, thank you, Gordon. And I just saw a comment come in. Can we please have a one hour webinar next time? Um. <laughs> Sounds like a great idea. And I would add to that, our intent, and Simon gave reference to this, is you quickly get tired of just Simon and I prattling on. Uh, we wanted to launch it with this discussion, uh, but we hope to bring in other people that we can have a conversation with. Uh, there are certainly uh, senior fellows that the United States Studies Center has, uh, and, and we'll begin to can keep this focus. Uh, and one thing I'm confident of is that between now and, and early July, there will be an awful lot more to talk about. So, oh, yeah. Simon, back to you. Uh, thank you, Gordon. Um, and thanks, everybody at Perth. Look forward to, to a, a follow-up event in roughly about a month, right, Gordon? When, when's yeah, our yeah. next one? First week, in, first week in July. I think the invites that went out from both of our centers have yep. the whole calendar laid out. So please register. We look forward to talking to you again yep. soon. Third of July. Uh, Appropriate. Yeah. That works well. Thanks. Appreciate okay. it. Bye, everybody. <laughs>